like we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. And before I get into what that means and we go through this kind of power struggle, this rotation of power that is occurring right now in the AFC, it was marred by a decision of Buffalo to go for a fourth down late. The score is 34-31. Titans were in front. There was, I don't know, 20 seconds or so left in the game. And Buffalo had a fourth and one. I don't even know if it was a full yard. Maybe fourth and foot, foot and a half, and they're at the Tennessee, like, five, six-yard line, where a field goal ties the game, sends it to overtime, and then you're just at nature of what happens with the coin toss. If they get the ball first, can your defense make a stop? If you get the ball first, can you go go down and score? But instead, they end up going for it, and it was a call that I didn't really think was too controversial personally. I mean, it's it's fourth and a foot, and you ran a QB sneak with a six foot four tank of a quarterback. He ends up kind of slipping. The left tackle gets blown back. You, you get the play blown up. You don't get any yards, and you lose the game because of that. I I didn't think it was controversial though because. Uh, like, the success rate of quarterback sneaks in those situations is like 80%, 80%, 90%. And then you, on top of it, have a really good quarterback who is built for plays like that. You've given up 34 points to the Titans. You really want to go to overtime and hope that they don't get the coin toss and leave it to a 50-50 proposition? Go win the game. You're supposed to have the best offense or one of the best offenses in the NFL. Like, go win the game. But it's one of those things when it doesn't work, it's, you know, all the controversy in the world. If it works, then it's, wow, what a play call. What a job by Sean McDermott to have the guts to go for it, right? Like, we we all applauded Baltimore and John Harbaugh at the end of the game against the Chiefs for icing that one away on the fourth and two, fourth and three, whatever it was, when they went for it. And John Harbaugh says, hey, do you want to go for this here? To Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson says, yeah, and they go for it and they get it. All applauded him for that. Now people want to say the opposite because of this. I think what it is more so than anything is it's kind of sparked this debate, that one play, for like if now we're crossing a line, if we're going for just as a football community, if we're going for these fourth downs too often, if they're being attempted too much, right? And the perfect team that we look at is the Chargers, who – 
went for like all these fourth downs against the Browns. They're converting fourth and six and fourth and seven. They're converting like fourth and three at their own end of the field late in the game. And then they're going for it on these fourth downs against the Ravens the same way they did against the Browns. They just didn't work as well. And you have a fourth down from inside your own 25 that you don't get. They take the ball over uh, already up 24 to six. And then they add to their lead. To where it is starting to spark this controversy of, are you going for it too much? I would just say this. If you have a good quarterback, if you have a good offense, you should be pretty much aggressive as possible. Now, I'm not saying, you know, you go for fourth and 10 every time or you even go for fourth and sixes all the time. Like, I think you should go for maybe a fourth and six, fourth and seven if you're, you know, at their 40-yard line or something like that. If you have fourth and seven at your own 20-yard line, yes, go ahead, punt the ball, you know. I'm not saying you should go for fourth down every single time. But this stigma needs to be erased of these fourth and one, fourth and twos when you decide to go for it on the opponent's end of the field. Think about that. In in the long term, like I get it, what, what raised the controversy of that one was that if you just kick the field goal there, it specifically ties the game, sends it to overtime. The notion of, of kicking field goals inside the red zone, if you have a fourth down opportunity where, let's say you're even 50-50 on whether you're going to convert that fourth down or not, right? You have a fourth and two, fourth and three, and you have about a 50% chance. And honestly, it might be higher because if your offense has Patrick Mahomes, your offense has Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, you're going to probably convert more than 50% of fourth down and two, fourth down and threes, right? But let's just say it's 50%. If you convert that first down in the red zone 50% of the time, and go on to score a touchdown, make the extra point, that's seven points 50% of the time, correct? If you kick a field goal both times, meaning that if you're 50% of the time, you could try it twice. You could go for two fourth downs inside their 20. One time you come up short, the other time you get a touchdown and a PAT. You have seven points on two tries. If you try two field goals on the fourth down and three, you have about, a 95% chance of making the field goal both times. So, which means you have six points if you make both field goals, which is still less than the touchdown. It's, it's just smarter to go for it there. So maybe there are certain times when it's a little excessive, but it's better to go for it on fourth down, especially when you have a good offense. And honestly, I think Andy Reid could probably take something out of the playbook and be more aggressive and going forward on fourth down. And the problem lies from within, like, I think us as fans need to do a better job with those fourth downs in more so accepting the process than the result, right? You hear that all the time with players and coaches, of the process over the result. Problem is... For a lot of fans, and this happens as well when Andy Reid does the the quote-unquote cute plays, the quote-unquote trick plays, right? When they work, when they get a touchdown, everybody's like, this is so awesome, coolest play in the world. When it gets stuffed, it's like, what are you doing? You're out thinking yourself. Just be vanilla. You have Patrick Mahomes, right? It's a, it's a result-based view of things. We do that with fourth downs. We do that with fourth downs to where if they get the fourth down, 
it's like, wow, that guy had Hutzfa going for that. That guy had intestinal fortitude. Good for him. He should have done that. He got it. And, and I'm I'm excluding analytics Twitter here because analytics Twitter um, wants you to go for it every time, basically, which, you know, like I said, sometimes there's, it's not every single time you need to go for it, but I do agree more so than often. And I do agree with that Bill's call. And when you don't get it, it becomes, what are you doing? So it becomes result-based. What what needs to happen is you just understand going into the drive, hey, this is fourth and one, let's just go for it. And then at that point, if you don't get it, you have to deal with it. You have to understand that that was the right call. So it just needs to be a more kind of processed uh, approach of viewing things. But anyway, uh, the Titans defeating the Bills, which has repercussions in the AFC. So first of all, I mean, this is probably great news for the Chiefs. I, For one, you're playing the Titans this week. Much rather play the Titans coming off a big win, coming off a big high, than coming off a loss where they're angry and, and pissed off. More so, you get them off the win where maybe they're going to have a down week. And it's harder to replicate what they did against the Bills maybe back-to-back weeks. So, that's a positive. It also shows the Bills probably aren't leaps and bounds better than everyone in the conference like after the Chiefs game it almost felt that way it almost felt that the Bills were leaps and bound better bounds better than the other teams in the AFC because they absolutely crushed the Chiefs and they had moved forward from the Steelers loss but I think what we've seen is now you know maybe that was kind of your A game the Chiefs were on their C game at best you played a good game you were better than the Chiefs that day. You're still probably better than the Chiefs this year because the Chiefs are still working on the defense. But it's not an overarching theme that the Bills are even the best team in the AFC. And it's not just that they're by far not the best team in the AFC anymore. I don't even know if you view them as the best team in the AFC anymore. Because think about this. We have jumped from the Chiefs are the best team in the AFC to the Chargers are the best team in the AFC to the Bills are the best team in the AFC to now the Ravens are the best team in the AFC. And what's going to happen is the Ravens are going to like, watch, the Ravens will lose this week to like the Bengals, and then we're going to have to start throwing the Bengals into this discussion or something. But this is like how cyclical and weird this has been. The Titans beat the Bills. The Bills whomped the Chiefs. This one's a little different, but the Chiefs probably should have beaten the Ravens, and the Ravens crushed the Chargers. Now, the only team who really is without a win in that scenario is the Chiefs. You take that away from them. But it just shows how cyclical it is. The Titans could beat the Bills. The Bills could destroy the Chiefs. The Chiefs shouldn't have lost that game against the Ravens. The Ravens just crushed the Chargers. Chargers also beat the Chiefs. It is such a rotation of power right now in the AFC. Honestly, I I think you have to say at this point that the Ravens are now the team to beat in the AFC. I've mentioned how much I've been impressed with the progression of Lamar Jackson in coming from behind late in games and in his passing. Well, what, 37 of 43 against the Colts passing? Led them from down 22 to 3 in the late third quarter to come back and win that game. Led them from down 11 against the Chiefs to come back and win that game. Led them to a blowout win over the Chargers. I didn't think Lamar Jackson would ever win an MVP again. You just thought, you know, between the toll it takes on your body to run like that and 
maybe defenses would adjust a little more and it would just be a little harder for him. He's gotten better, better as a passer. I think uh, I saw a, a tweet of like the, the most rushing yards by players since 2018. And Derrick Henry was like by a mile in first place, which was incredible to look at. Lamar Jackson was like sixth among all runners since 2018 rushing yards. And now you're adding the fact that he is becoming a more consistent passer, a better passer. They are showing they can come back from behind. So at this point, I say they're the best team in the, in the AFC. But like I said, at the same point in time, I think we've seen enough this year already to feel confident there's going to be more results within the next two, three weeks that are going to make us think contrary of that and make us think different again and rotate back around. Or will a team, like I said, the Bengals, will a team like the Browns enter the fray? The Browns are 3-3 three and three right now. They're kind of beat up, and I don't really know what to think of the Browns. Baker Mayfield in a sling, so who knows what, what that's going to affect. But there's also, you know, some numbers that could revert for the Browns. Like, on first and second down, they have one of the best defenses in the NFL on those specific downs. And then they have, like, one of the worst defenses in the NFL on third downs despite the fact that they're forcing teams into third and medium, third and long. Maybe part of that is personnel. The DBs maybe aren't as good or something, but I think part of that is just a little bit unlucky and, and maybe you get a reversion to the mean. So I don't know. Does a team like the Bengals or Browns enter the fray? At the very least, the Ravens, Bills, Chargers, Chiefs, and Titans, that's five legit teams in the AFC. And I, I feel even despite the Titans win, I feel a little lesser about their Super Bowl contention status even after that win. But they made the AFC Championship game two years ago. Made it to the playoffs again last year. They're probably going to win the AFC South again this year, and they just showed that they can beat the Bills. They beat the Bills last year pretty handedly last year. They beat the Bills this year. Maybe that's just a good matchup for them. And who's to say that if you don't match up in the playoffs with the Bills, like what if the Titans make the conference championship again and they get to play the Bills instead of the Chiefs? and that's a better matchup for them, they, they can advance on. Beyond just the rotation of power in the AFC, I do think, though, it presents the Chiefs quite the opportunity here. I mentioned how you'd rather play the Titans coming off a big upset than the alternative, and that's true. It also would give the Chiefs their first chance, not their first chance, but a chance right now to get a win against a team with a winning record. Right now, they don't have any wins against teams with winning records. Eagles are 2-4, and four, Washington's 2-4, and four, Browns are 3-3. Three and three. How much does that matter? I don't know, but you have the opportunity to do that, and I think it'd make you feel a lot better that, hey, they're proving they can beat good teams now because as much as I think the Browns are going to come out of this and finish with a winning record and be a possible playoff team, you don't totally know. You know the Titans game would be a quality win. I mean, if that wasn't proof enough by Tennessee's track record of making the playoffs with Vrabel, them beating a real Super Bowl contender in Buffalo supplants it, and it makes you feel like you can beat the Bills this year if you can beat the Titans, even despite your shortcomings, just because you saw what the Titans did to them. Beyond that, this is also your chance to get back above 500. You haven't been above 500 this year outside of the first week of the season. Get a strong win. Get your first two-game winning streak of the year. Establish some positive momentum for really the first time this season. Now, if you lose, it's more of the same. 
and you'll have lost at that point to all of the top four contenders in the AFC. You'll have one more crack against the Chargers later in the year on the road. But if you lose to the Titans here, you will have lost to the other four top contenders in the AFC, which on one hand would be excusable losses, but on the other hand would further institute the idea that maybe this year we don't take the Chiefs seriously as one of the top tier contenders in the AFC. All of a sudden you win this game, that conversation's back on the table. And then you get the Giants after that, a game you're probably going to be favored by, I don't know, 10 points or so. And boy, would that be a good opportunity to move forward, get the momentum rolling with this Chiefs team coming off a win last week in which the offense and really got going the second half. The defense had its best game of the season facing a Tennessee team that's coming off a high right now. And I don't know how you stop Derrick Henry. I don't know how this defense is going to go about trying to stop the Titans, how bad the defense has been. But at the very least, you're coming off your best defensive performance of the year against the Washington football team. So a big opportunity awaits and provides itself this Sunday with the Chiefs taking on the Titans because of what happened last night. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Did your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact D Johnson at gpmnow.com. That's D Johnson at gpmnow.com. About 20 till 4, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLBN. That's time on a Tuesday to be joined by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. So, Matt, uh, KU football uh, didn't have quite the showing. I know a lot of people were hoping for. I'm sure KU was hoping for 41-14, the final score against Texas Tech, a team that you were coming off a bye week against. And now, as we look at this team, I was doing a little comparison yesterday. Uh, points per game-wise, if you're just looking at against FBS opponents, they're about a point better than they were last year, but defense is about two, three points worse than last year, so your point differential is worse, is worse than a, a season ago. Um, is this KU team, do you think it's better, worse, or about the same than last season's team? Oh, my gosh, Derek. Um mm. I, number one, I wish you would have warned me about this question. Number two, I wish I was drinking right now. Um, <laughs> I love blindsiding you right off the bat. I give you the hardest question first. It's your mind stimulated. You, you are pretty good at it. Um, I, you know, man, I, I, I tend to say worse. Um, and, and I'm not 100% sure why because I do think, you know, they've upgraded in a couple of areas, but, but – not very many, and not not significantly either. So, um, I, you know, the last two weeks uh, have been rough, obviously, and, and the next two weeks look like they're going to be rough as well, largely because of the opponents. So, uh, yeah, I just don't think I don't I don't see. I mean, I think the O line's better in some ways. I think the O line was one of the worst we've seen last year, um, and and this group didn't start off great but um 
here recently, I think their pass blocking's gotten a lot better and looks better. And, and given Bean the time he needs, and and in some ways Bean is an upgrade for sure over over a lot of what they've had. And in other ways, I think I think he really had a bad game this week. I think uh, I think he was a a big part of the reason that the offense didn't do anything. And and um, he you know so even though he's exciting and you like his speed and you like what he can do with his legs and all that. Uh, Look, man, he's he's you know he's not a, a guaranteed. Hey, he's just going to start no matter what the rest of the way. I mean, he's he's got to find a way to to be more efficient and also to produce more. Um, and obviously, it's not just on him. It's 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 obviously the whole group out there. So it's hard to pinpoint that on just one guy. But um, but so those are two pretty key areas. The secondary's worse. Um, there's some young guys back there uh, that. that that are taking their lumps. The linebackers are bad. Um, I think that the defensive line's a little bit worse just because you had some, you had some real talent up there last year and you, you have some potential here this year, but anyway, we, we won't keep going position by position, but, but I don't, you know, I don't say worse where it's just overwhelmingly obvious that they're worse. I think, you know, those numbers that you pointed to make me think it's probably pretty close to the same. And, and I'm sure there's some other statistics that would, that would probably paint that same picture. So I don't think it's throw your hands up and, oh, my God, they're, they're worse than ever, and this is a terrible team, and they're going the wrong direction, and I can't even believe it. But I also don't think you can sit there and say, well, this team's definitely better. You know, I think it's just, it's just uh, circumstantial, and it's they're in a tough spot, and and uh, they're not catching any breaks right now either. So I would lean worse, but but not by an overwhelming amount. Yeah, I guess I just I don't understand it because as as inconsistent as the QB play has been this year, including last game, it's still not probably worse than what you got last year. The offensive line situation, while still not great this year is a lot better than it was last year just because of how bad it was last year. The receiver right. position is probably a little better because Trevor Wilson's there. The defensive line is, I don't know, maybe that's a little worse than last year because you don't have Marcus Harris to John Terry, but it's not completely different. The linebacking core, while it's struggled so mightily this year, that was the case last year too. And then I guess the only difference in the secondary was Karan Prunty, which that is a big difference, but... That just doesn't seem like enough to me for me to understand why they could possibly be worse this year than last year. And you could start out by saying, well, they didn't have spring practices with the new coaching staff. Well, guess what? Last year's team didn't get spring practices either because of COVID. So I, I'm completely like befuddled of how this team isn't at least slightly better and is possibly even worse than last year's team when you also look at the fact that all the teams that they have played this year that they did play last year as well, they've lost by more to each one of them this year than they did last year. Yeah, that's crazy. There you go. There's there's definitely a stat that that paints a a, a picture for worse. Um, I, I I do think there's something to be said for the for the coaching change though, um, and not necessarily just because of the spring practices, as you mentioned. That's kind of a wash. But um, and and this isn't a negative toward Leipold either. I mean, not not by any means. I just think that it's hard. It's hard to make a culture change, to make a coaching change, to completely uh, reinvent what you're doing and what your philosophy is and, and, and the way you run practice and the way you run your meetings and the coaches and the familiarity and, and 
and relationships between players and coaches and all that stuff. I mean, all of that factors into how you play, whether it's a large amount or, or a small amount. I mean, all of that factors in. And so I, I think that that could be one of those, there's the, there's the reason, and even though it's kind of a silent assassin or a hidden killer or whatever you want to call it, it's there, it's playing a part, and it's obviously having a, a, a real effect. So I, I think that, that you can't overlook that part of it. Um, the idea, obviously, is that good, bad, or indifferent, this season is about laying the foundation um, culturally and philosophically and all those things for what Leipold's teams are and will be about in the future. And, and you know, that's his goal. And so I think you, you start judging it based on that. I mean, I've heard a lot of people calling this kind of year zero, right? And I kind of like that because um, in addition to the timing of when he took over being so unique and, and really causing some some difficult factors or being a difficult factor in the transition, um, it, it, it's really hard. I mean, none of these are his guys quite yet. Uh, he took over late. He didn't get spring. Yada yada yada. So I like I like year zero, and and then and then you just get the most out of it that you can, and you hope that something sticks, and you hope that the the the, the, the philosophies and the things that you're able to put in place this year are strong enough and and prevalent enough and carry over enough to when you show up for that first spring practice in in March or whenever it is these guys walk in the door and they know what the expectations are they know what uh how to interact with their coaches they know how to how to run a practice they know what what drills they do they know you know what are what are priorities within live pulled offense and defense and things like that and and so then that to me is when you can truly start year one right but but um i know that all sounds like excuses and all of that and i, I know no one wants it to be that way but but I do think it's fair to call it year zero, and, and I think that's a good way to sort of quantify it. Yeah, and I, I 100% agree with you with what you're saying. Um, and to reference something that I've referenced a lot is that one Andy Kotelnicki quote about, you know, it's it's a lot harder to institute culture when games are being played, especially. He didn't say this part, but especially if you are losing, if you're losing by big scores. I guess that's that's the worry to me because I, I do agree with you about the year zero stuff. I do agree with the notion of it's kind of a blindfold year in terms of you can't really judge the results for this thing, but I would be worried about the fact that if it's not even a little bit better from where it was last year when you were 0-9 and it was dire a season ago, and now you're losing by even more than you were last year to teams this year, like what effect does that have on trying to institute that culture? I, I know it's, it's- it's interesting too because you know you have this is all just a fantasy exercise so to speak but you know you, you can't help but sit here and wonder well this would have been year three of less miles so what would it have looked like and we don't know you know I mean there, there would have been different players there would have been different different uh, situations different points of emphasis all that stuff so you know, you, you don't know, but I, I mean, my gut tells me it wouldn't have been very pretty. I, I mean, I, I don't know that they would have been much better than they are. And, and that would have been in the third year of a guy. So, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's neither here nor there. Um, but it, it, it is interesting and it's very interesting to bring up since Les Miles was in the building the other day. That was the craziest thing that I've 
seen in a long, long time. I would have never expected that. And I get it. You've probably talked about it this week. But, I mean, I get it. His kid's on the team. But his kid was in shorts and a T-shirt, basically. Uh, you know, Yeah, I, I thought it was weird, too. I, I thought it was really weird, and then he was on the field after the game. I mean, he went he went down and 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 had the 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 you know bold bold approach of actually stepping onto the field and mingling with some former players and players from the other team. And I mean that it just seemed it just seemed so strange to me, and just like a, a, another way, sort of that cherry on the top of the left mile Sunday that just reminds you how out of touch this guy must have been because I can't name on one hand a number of coaches that I think would have ever done that the very next year. Um, but, you know, again, we're getting off topic a little bit, but but that was, that was, I mean, that was wild. It was so wild I couldn't even find a way to write about it. I wanted to, and I was just Still, my mind was just blown that this was actually happening. So I just, I just couldn't even couldn't even latch onto it. But um, it, you know, I, I think that I think getting back to your topic, I think the thing that's that's most interesting here is is and and probably the biggest thing to watch the rest of the way. I firmly believed, and in some ways still do believe, that Lance Leipold is the type of coach that knows how to rally a team, knows how to be disciplined and, and emphasize those types of things that, things that Kansas desperately needed. So when you have a coach like that, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to expect a team that, hey, that's fine if they have a rough first or second week. You know, it's a new coach, and they're still getting to know each other, and they didn't have a time together in the offseason and all this stuff, right? But, but I firmly believe when the season started that, this would be a team that shows progress over the course of the year and that would be better in November than it is in September. And as we sit here today, I definitely don't have the same amount of confidence in saying that, if, if I even would say that. I mean, I think that what we've seen the last couple of weeks has been a little bit undisciplined and has been a little bit uh, more about, you know, obviously these opponents are better than KU, but but there's also been a huge element of KU beating itself and and not doing itself any favors and making mental errors and things like that and and those are the types of things that I didn't think we would see in mid to late October and certainly didn't expect to see in November. I thought they're going to lose a bunch of games, they're going to take their lumps, but they're going to show that they are getting better and that and that they're a team that even within the season is making progress and improving and, and getting tougher as the, as the weeks go on. And I don't know, I don't know if that's going to happen anymore. And, and if, if nothing else, that's, that's one of the things that kind of makes the rest of the season really interesting to me. It's like, that's, that's what I'll be looking for. They're not going to win another game. Um, and, and frankly, Derek, I, I thought it was crazy that people thought they had a chance last week. I mean, I, I don't know what people are, I don't know what people are, are subscribing to that made them think going into that game that they would have a chance. I mean, yeah, did you want them to have a chance to be competitive? Sure. That's a different thing, though, than, than having a chance to win the game. And obviously they weren't either. So I, I think they're not going to win another game. 
I don't think they catch anybody off guard. I don't think they catch anybody sleeping. I don't think anything like that's going to happen because the talent disparity is just too much. But I think the biggest thing you can focus on the rest of the way, if you're a fan and if you're listening right now and if you want to pay attention, and if you don't and you're done with this season and you check in next August or next March or whatever it is, so be it. That's, I don't blame you at all. But if you are going to continue to pay attention the rest of the way, I think that's what you want to watch. You want to watch, are they showing improvement? And, and, and that's not necessarily looking for silver linings or looking for signs of progress, but the things that they're not doing well today or last week or two weeks ago, do they look like they're getting better in those areas? And they, they, they don't have to have it licked. They don't have to have it to where they've, they've fixed all their problems because that's a heavy undertaking too. But I think they have to just – you can watch and you can see, well, they're doing this better or they're doing this better or they're, you know, hey, this, this looks better than it did three weeks ago or whatever. And if you see that, then, then I think that, that, that was my expectation anyway going into the season. I thought that's what we would see. And so there's a lot – that remains to be um, discovered this year. There's a lot that we can still find out about this team, even if we totally throw out the, the wins and losses and, and, and don't even worry about the results. Yeah, I, I'm very interested to see where it goes from here. But like I said, I guess it's just blinders on, and whatever happens in year two, year three, we're either going to connect back to this and be like, see, it didn't matter, or we're going to be like, well, Maybe that was the signal, but, I mean, you can't really do anything with it now. We're talking with Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Uh, real quick, Matt, before I let you go, I know you're out in KC today for the, the Big 12 Women's Basketball Media Day. Um, things haven't been much better for the women's basketball team than the KU football team, honestly, over the last six or seven years. Is there hope this year that this team can be better? What's, what's kind of the scene, do you think, around the KU women's basketball team this year? Yeah, good question. Obviously, uh, the women today and the men's media day, Big Twelve tomorrow. Um, but but I do I do think so. I mean, I think they uh, they have, you know, obviously this time of year you find hundreds of teams that'll tell you good things and that like where they're at and and will have optimism and say positive things and all that. Um, but but I do I do think you know you're starting to hear a little bit different language from from Brandon Snyder and from his girls. Um, they, they, you know, that a lot of what I heard today was this is a this is the most complete team they've had. That's 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 the message from both the coach and the players. And uh, they feel like they have some depth this year. They feel like they had some players that are talented playing kind of out of position last year um, for a variety of reasons. But you know, the hope obviously from their perspective this year is that that's not going to be the case this year. Girls are going to be able to play where they where they're comfortable and, and play their position. And if they're able to do that, they should perform better and, and hopefully, you know, uh, produce and, and, and maybe rack up some more wins. And so the, the optimism is certainly there. Um, and, and I think their, their, their goals are big. Their standard is high. Their, their expect, expectations are, are that, you know, that they'll not just be able to compete in the Big 12, but they'll, they'll be able to win games and actually, you know, do something that, that people take notice of. So um, I know that sounds a little bit like a broken record, which which is perfect, you know, lead in to talking about all this football stuff that we've talked about over and over and over for the last several years <laughs> under a variety of different coaches. So it all fits together um, very nicely today. But, uh, you know, I think that all you can do is listen to what they say, you know, and I, I know people that, that maybe listen to your show or, 
or read what we write, get get tired of reading that and hearing that. And, and you know, I mean, all, all we can do is, is write, write what they're telling us. And, and then the results and their performance kind of dictates whether they were telling the truth or if they were selling you a bill of goods or whatever the case is, you know. So I, I think that um, what I heard today makes me sort of lean toward this team may have enough talent to actually – be relevant and have a little bit better season than they've had in a long, long time. And they're still very young and they still have a bunch of newcomers. And so it is going to be easy, but I think that they're starting from a good place. And I think their team chemistry seems very, very good. And, you know, I think that's as important as anything you can have. I mean, if your locker room's not good, then, then, you know, you got no chance really, um, unless you're like a super team, but, um, They've had issues with that in the past, and I don't think at all that that's an issue this year. So I think that they've got enough things going for them that they could maybe, uh, you know, maybe turn this this season into the one that people have been looking for for a number of years now. And obviously, um, Brandon Snyder, whose record is is not good, as you mentioned, um, he needs that as much as anybody. But but I asked him about that today, and you know, his focus is is hey, as coaches, all we can do is is get the girls ready and, and put them in, in position to, to go 1-0 and in the game that's in front of us. And, and if we do that enough times, then good things will happen. And if we don't do that, then we'll have failed. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. You know, I mean, he knows it. And, and uh, I, I do think his approach and viewing it that way um, does take some of the pressure out of it, right? Like, this is a big year for him. He's, he's probably got to do pretty well, um, in order to make Travis Goff and, and the rest of the administration believe that, that he should still be the coach here uh, for, for the long-term future. So um, that could keep you up at night. That could, that could be difficult. But his approach and, and the way he was at least telling me about it today is um, it doesn't sound like he's looking at it that way. He's more focused on let's just go win this game and let's just, let's just go be as good as we can today and see what happens. And so – you know that's that's the right way to go after it, and and they've got some transfers in, and like I said, they got a bunch of newcomers they're excited about, and and you know let's let's see what happens, but um but yeah they need it. They this is a big year for the program and and for for Snyder in general. I mean they they need to show some signs of life and and show some progress, and and again that's that's been the theme of this segment progress and improvement and i'd like to think derek that from when we first started when i wasn't ready and told you that i'd rather be drinking and things like that i'd like to think that i got better as this segment progressed so (laughs) i think that fits in right there too i mean i think i finished pretty strong and was doing some of my best blabbing at the end here no i love it uh you're like uh, a good running back you get stronger as the fourth quarter goes on right so (laughs) yeah that's fair People have compared my ability to talk to Derek Henry's ability to run. There you go. I I am just a force, and it is unstoppable at times, and sometimes all people want you to do is just stop. So I I can understand that for sure. (laughs) He is Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, the Derek Henry of the KU beat. Matt, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Derek. I appreciate it, man. Have a good week. All right, that's Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports talks college football and basketball with us in about 15 minutes from right now. But first, 
time for your college football whip around. Georgia just continues to dominate. They're doing to teams what Alabama used to do to teams. Now, Alabama used to have, you know, best defense in the country every year, give up 10 points per game. They would have dominant running game and then a passing game that was like just enough. You know, you'd, you'd be a game manager. You wouldn't turn the ball over. You'd convert some key third downs. You'd get the ball up to some good athletes on the outside. And they would just dominate you, slowly work you into oblivion. That is what Georgia is right now. That's kind of the new age of what Alabama became. They were that, and then they added the Heisman-level quarterback and weapons at the receiver position, and that turned into what you had last year, which was one of the greatest college football teams of all time. So Georgia's not to that level, but in a year where there has been a lot of chaos and maybe there's not another historically great team or elite, elite team, Georgia is that, just without the quarterback. And maybe they'll have that when JT Daniels comes back from injury. Right now they're using Stetson Bennett, the backup. But even with a backup quarterback, even playing ranked teams, even playing on the road sometimes, they're beating these teams by two, three, four touchdowns. They're making it look easy. And when you look at the schedule, there's no one left on the schedule who you actually view as being a threat moving forward. It might be a little different if they were playing in the SEC West. Right now, the SEC East, it was like Florida was supposed to be, and now Florida's unranked. Kentucky, maybe they were supposed to be something, but Kentucky just got walloped by Georgia, and maybe they're kind of taking advantage of a weaker SEC East than the West as well. So we're not really going to know. Like We know Georgia is really, really good. We know Georgia is a playoff-worthy team. We know Georgia, right now, they've passed every test and make you think that, yes, they are deserving of the number one ranking in the country, but we won't know for sure about whether they truly are like a great, great team that does deserve to win the title or if they're just having a really great season that should lead to a playoff appearance until probably the SEC championship game. Uh, this is also, though, setting up to be Georgia-Alabama part two, even despite the Alabama loss a couple weeks ago. Cincinnati sits at number two. Everyone else is a rotating door. The team who might have the most potential, honestly, to break that up is Oklahoma. Now that they made the switch to Caleb Williams, who I asked this question last week, like, what's the latest a player could play and still win Heisman? Because he is really darn good, and he could correlate with them looking a lot better in the perception of Oklahoma changing over the course of the season. But he might only have seven or eight games under his belt if he does so. I'm going to ask that with Kevin Flaherty. But the funny part is, even with this rotation of well, who's the number two team in the country, who's the number three team in the country, you know what's going to end up happening? Look at the standings right now. Georgia's going to get in. Alabama's going to get in. They're you know, Bama's going to beat Georgia in the SEC title. Both are going to get in. Oklahoma's going to get in, and Ohio State's going to win out and get in. And after all this chaos, after all this tumbling around of different teams getting upset, we're just going to have the same damn thing with the same damn teams except for Clemson, and we have Georgia in there this year. That's going to be the only difference, except Georgia also made it a couple years ago as well. And part of the reason why there's just so many top-ranked teams right now that you don't trust to keep winning at this high of a level. Like Michigan State is a good team. So I don't want to I don't want to change that. But do you trust Michigan State is going to end up with zero or one losses? No, you don't. They still have to play what? Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan. They might lose all three of those. Oklahoma State. 
as the season has gone on, I've bought more into Oklahoma State. Their defense is really good. Still not at a point where I'm expecting Oklahoma State to win or to, to only lose one game or go undefeated. I still think they probably lose twice. Wake Forest. You really going to trust Wake Forest to finish the season undefeated? Iowa was probably in this category if you would have asked me last week, but now their balloon burst to Purdue. That's kind of the same way I feel with Michigan State, Oklahoma State, and Wake Forest. Good teams could end up making New Year's Six Bowls, could end up with, you know, 10, 11 win seasons, but it feels like the balloon is going to burst on you at some point. And then, like I said, it's just inevitably going to be Oklahoma, Ohio State, Georgia, and Alabama yet again. Okay, that brings me to the last part of our college football whip around, which we do every week. Who is still alive, technically, for the college football playoff? Reminder, refresher on the rules. One, if you want to make the playoff, you can't have two losses. Exception to this, which is, I guess, rule 1B, unless you're the SEC champ. Auburn would have made it with two losses a couple years ago, but then they had their third loss in the SEC title game. Prior to that, they were the number two seed. So if you're an SEC team, you can have two losses. Everybody else, sorry, you're gone. Uh, Rule number two, most often if you're a group of five, you can't make it. You have one exception to make it as a group of five. Be good the season before, play marquee non-con games, go undefeated, and hope it gets crazy. There's a lot of stipulations there but that does give at least a creak of an opening for at least one team. If we want to stretch it, maybe two more, but realistically, probably just one. Um, And then rule three, if you do lose that one time, it has to either come against another good team. But if it does come against a good team, you better hope that it's not a team that's right next to you in the standings because then they'll be in front of you because of the head-to-head. So come against a good team or... If it comes against like a mediocre team, like a five, six, seven win team, you can't get blown out. Ohio State was a one loss Big Ten champ a couple years ago. They didn't make it because they got blown out by a mediocre team, a mediocre Purdue team, right? If Purdue was good or like if Purdue was nine and three or if you didn't get blown out and it was a close loss, maybe they make it. And then the third part of that rule is you get revenge. If Ohio State would have had the chance to play Purdue in the Big Ten title game in a rematch, one that would have meant Purdue is a good team, so that would have kind of crossed the first part. Um, but you could have got revenge, and then you can have the easy convincing of yourself that, oh, well, I know they lost that, that last time, but more recently they won, so they are they, they did prove they're the better team. We can't realize that other game. So those are the rules for how to be alive to make it to the college football playoff. Last week, we had 28 teams that were still, at the very least, alive, technically, to make the playoff. Doesn't mean I think they could make the playoff, or I think they'll go undefeated, or I think they will. It just means if it worked out for them, if they went undefeated, they could make it, based on those rules. And there's a line here. I know this is kind of vague and and establishing your own points. Like, if you really want to get crazy, you could just say, well, technically, anything could happen. So why couldn't a three-team three-loss team make it if this team loses three games. But it's like, okay, this is a realistic way of looking at things. So we're down from 28 teams who could make it to 21 teams who could make it this week. From the ACC, the only teams who can make it at this point, Wake Forest, NC State. Boston College got crushed by NC State over the weekend. Boston College had one loss. It was a close loss to Clemson. Before then, they were originally still in the running. Now they're out because you lost a second time. Pitt is a one-loss team in the ACC. 
and they're interesting. I, I battled back and forth between putting them on this list. But I did not, despite the one loss, despite the fact they're ranked 23rd, because their one loss is to Western Michigan. It was a close loss, but that is a bad loss. I don't even think that'll get viewed at as you lost to, like, a mediocre team. So, Pitt, out. I'm only saying Wake Forest, they're undefeated. NC State has one loss. It was the Mississippi State, which looks bad if you were to say, oh, well, we lost to maybe the worst team in the SEC West, you know? I mean, Mississippi State still might end up being, like, a, a, a bowl team in the SEC West, and upsets happen, so you can just play it off like that, but... They have their work cut out for them, but with one loss, if they win the ACC and they get the right path, who knows? Maybe it could happen. Uh, from the Big 12, OU Oklahoma State still undefeated. They have a chance. Baylor still only has one loss, and it was a close-ish loss to Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State scored a late touchdown to, to make it a two-score game, but they were really in it the whole way through. It was on the road against a good Oklahoma State team, so they're still in it. They won out. They're getting in. Big 10, Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, all or excuse me, not Ohio State and Penn State. Michigan State, Michigan undefeated. Ohio State, Penn State, and Iowa all have one loss, but if they went out from here, they'll still probably make it. Pac-12, Oregon hanging on by a threat. Barely beat a bad Cal team. They're hanging on. I think they're going to lose this week to UCLA, and then we can take them off. They're the only one-loss team in the Pac-12. No undefeated teams. Arizona State's gone because they lost to Utah, so they now have two losses this year. SEC has the most. Georgia, Kentucky, Alabama, Ole Miss, Auburn, Texas A&M all have two losses or less. As I mentioned, you just win the SEC. Even with two losses, you're getting in. And then from the group of five, if you add the independents as well, Notre Dame, BYU is out after losing to Baylor. Cincinnati has a chance. SMU and San Diego State, those might be stretches. But what San Diego State has going for it, it beat Utah. And if Utah, who just beat Arizona State, if Utah were to win out, win the Pac-12, and be sitting at 11-2, and Utah's going to be ranked if they're 11-2 and and win the Pac-12. They're going to be a top-10 team. They might be a top-18. And at that point, San Diego State undefeated would be in front of them. They would just have to hope Utah could get as high as possible. SMU beat TCU, which I'm tempted to take them off the list now because TCU, that win is falling off a little bit. But still a good win, and they have the chance to beat Cincinnati in front of them, which would be a very marquee win. So we'll give them a technicality. Just 21 teams left for the college football playoff. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, joins us next. Four forty on a Tuesday. Time to talk to Kevin Flaherty of Twenty Four Seven Sports here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. Talk a little college football, college basketball with Kevin, with kind of the convergence of those things. But I want to start in college football. Oklahoma officially did start Caleb Williams, so the uh, student binoculars were correct on that one. Is it too ludicrous to say that Caleb Williams could be a Heisman contender? And at what point would he cross into that threshold of, like, being a legit candidate? You know, the the funny thing about it is that the stage almost seems set for him to do so. And what I mean by that is, and, and I think you've seen this as well, Derek, in that when people don't have great candidates, they start tossing out off-the-wall candidates. Mm-hmm. I saw a piece this week. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember from who, but they were saying that, a Georgia defensive lineman, you know, deserved to be in the discussion. And, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I I think 
when you start having that narrative where people start really searching and it's not an obvious person or from a group of obvious people, that's when you start to see some of the stranger choices sort of, you know, rise to the fore. We saw that with the Dominican Sue, who was, you know, maybe the, the best player in the country that year, but certainly he started picking up votes in that narrative that he was. And you saw him take off. You saw that what with Quinn and Williams, I think, a few years ago from Alabama, where you know Quinn and Williams may have been the best player in college football. He might not have been, but the fact that he was, you know, sort of picking up steam as as the refined voters' choice, if you will, you know, kind of uh, it, it, it kind of it probably said more about the state of that race than it did about Williams and and nothing about Williams. He was, he was really, really good. I believe that was the year that Kyler Murray won it. But at the same time, when people start tossing out these off the wall suggestions and and start, you know, trying to find, you know, some sort of secret Heisman formula, it's like that whole thing about when you have two quarterbacks, you've got none. If you've got, you know, a room full of guys that you say could win the Heisman, that means you don't have a favorite. And I think that, we're kind of in that spot. And so Caleb Williams to win the Heisman would obviously be unprecedented, not just in terms of him being a, a true freshman quarterback and all of the things that go along with that, but also with Williams being in a situation where he didn't play, you know, the first several games or didn't play, you know, really high leverage snaps in Oklahoma's first several games. And yet at the same time, if Oklahoma does turn the corner, if the offense does become what we all thought it would be initially under Spencer Rattler, and you can attribute it to Caleb Williams, I don't know that he's going to have the counting stats where people will will be able to look at it and make that decision. But when you look at the end of the year and it's coming down to place your votes, if Oklahoma really takes off and becomes the team that we all thought they would be, it is a pretty intriguing proposition to say, hey, this guy was the most impactful player in college football this year. He took over for somebody who was supposed to be a Heisman Trophy candidate and elevated that team. And so in that case, I could certainly see him picking up some votes. I still think it'd be tough for him to uh, to pull off the overall win, though. Yeah, I, I uh, kind of want it to happen, to be completely honest, for the, the chaotic nature of it. Which I was going to say, you're all for chaos. Yeah, so. I mean, honestly, like, and I don't think I'm alone in this. A lot of people, one of the reasons they love college football is because of how chaotic it can get. So what would be more chaotic than that? Um, if I were to give you Oklahoma versus the field right now in the Big 12, are, are you taking that? Yeah, I think so. I, I do think Williams really elevates where they're at offensively. Defensively, they haven't been as good as they were early on, you know, and it, it's been kind of almost jarring to hear the way Alex Grinch has talked about his group because they've had struggles in the past, Derek, but it, it seems like they've always gotten better under Grinch, right? Like the struggles have come at the beginning of the year. They've kind of worked through it, and then Grinch has had the type of defense he wanted, you know, when when it mattered at, at the end of the year. And so for Oklahoma to start off pretty well defensively and then kind of, you know, lax the last few weeks and, and not play as well the last few weeks when you're talking about the Kansas State performance, which is when he first really got on top of them, when you're talking about how poorly they played 
against Texas and then this past weekend, you know, against TCU, I, I think all of a sudden, you know, Oklahoma's defense isn't playing well, but they're capable of playing a lot better than what they are right now. And if Williams gets that offense, you know, sort of operating it and, and firing on all cylinders as we thought it could beforehand, uh, I do think that Oklahoma is the, is the best team in the Big 12 right now. Yeah, and I guess the the discussion of who else would it be would probably be what Oklahoma State or Iowa State, which they play this week. Um, sure. I, I I keep getting to a point every week where I'm like, no, this can't keep lasting with Oklahoma State. Not that I don't think they're a good team, but I I don't think they're like a legit playoff contender, which they keep winning every week. So who knows? So this is the week for me. If Oklahoma State goes into Iowa State and beats the Cyclones, I will be fully aboard the Cowboys bandwagon that they are a college football playoff threat, but I still, for whatever reason, cannot get there, and I still think Iowa State is just going to get hot, as they usually do in October, and they're starting to do already with two straight wins, and just find their way back to the Big 12 title. Yeah, I think Iowa State's a lot better than people realize, and you know, not necessarily putting you in that, but... You know, you're talking about a team that lost to Iowa despite basically doubling up Iowa in, in total yards. And, yes, turnovers are a part of the game. Turnovers happen. But at the same time, I, I don't think there's really an argument that, that Iowa State didn't outplay Iowa in that game. And Iowa State outplayed Baylor and, and let a couple special teams plays kind of decide that one. And so you're looking at a team that is, you know, just sort of, perilously close almost to being the team that we all thought that they could be heading into the season, the team that was ranked, you know, sixth, eighth, whatever they were in the polls. And so I think Iowa State's starting to look more and more like that team. I'm right there with you on Oklahoma State. You know, I've, I've said on this show, you know, they, uh, they've killed my, uh, my upset alert column a couple times, you know, betting against them or, or picking them to potentially get upset. And yet at the same time, when you look at, at them against Iowa State this week, I do think Iowa State, you know, has the defense to really hold down Oklahoma State's offense, which hasn't really been all that effective. I think the, the other key is Oklahoma State's defense is playing really, really well, but Iowa State may just have a little bit too much firepower to fall uh, to in that game. Yeah. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 sports. Um, other end of the spectrum in the Big 12, Kansas loses big to Texas Tech. I guess where, do you, where, where does Kansas go from here? You know, growth isn't linear, and we've I've said this on the show before that, you know, you're going to have games where, you know, you look like, oh, my gosh, they took two giant steps forward and, and they're on their way, and you're going to have some, some games where it, it gets away from you. And, you know, I, I think anybody who watched that game was disappointed in the result. I think Lance Leipold was disappointed in the result. I bet the staff was disappointed in the result and the way things went there because I don't think that Texas Tech is 41 to 14 better than than Kansas is. They just were on that Saturday and when you look at where Kansas has been at certain times this year, Derek, if you imported the offense from say the Duke game and the way Kansas executed offensively in that Duke game, you know, that might have been worth 30 points against that Texas Tech defense. And then, you know, even if you lose the game, you're talking about a wholly different feeling. And so, 
it's one of those things that, that I think this is why Lance Leipold gets paid the big bucks is because it's so tough to go through a bye week, to work with players on, on what they've been, you know, maybe struggling with a little bit, trying to get that improvement and get them to see that that improvement is coming and get that buy-in to continue where they can look at it and say, look, I can see myself getting better. It's evident to me. And then to have a, a game like that right on the other part of it, that that's where Leipold gets paid is to go back in on that Sunday and say, hey, look, we aren't as far off as you think we are. If we make this block here and there, you know, we score here. If we, you know, maybe do this a little bit better, take a better angle here. If, you know, we react to this play a little bit more quickly, all of a sudden you're talking about a different game. And I know that that sounds like excuses or, or it sounds like, you know, you're, you're kind of adding up a lot of different things, but at the same time, Derek, that's where Kansas has to go to get better. That's how you get better is by fixing those little things, by getting better at those little things. And before you know it, all of those little things add up to the big things. And you wind up having a Buffalo offense that, you know, winds up averaging seven yards of carry on wide zone or whatever it was last year. And so I think that's kind of where, where Kansas is at right now. You know, obviously, Still a little bit under-talented, underdeveloped, you know, that talent as far as, you know, weight room, you know, getting to where guys are going to get. They're still a little bit young. The key is going to be to, to just keep, you know, keep them looking down at, at their feet and the next step forward and the next step forward after that. And, and before you know it, you know, you look up and you're a mile down the road and that's kind of where they're at right now. All right, I want to switch over to some college basketball, the initial AP poll the preseason poll was released uh, earlier this week. Was there anything that stood out to you in the initial preseason poll? You know, I, I always feel like I get it. I get into uh, arguments with people about UCLA. Uh, <laughs> oh, being, I was, being at number I was two. getting there yesterday. But, but you know, UCLA had the run. I think they found something of themselves, and so – when you look at it from that perspective, yes, I can see somebody saying if they got clipped in the playing game, then none of that would have happened. But they didn't get clipped in the playing game. And they won some close games and they beat some really good teams, you know, to get to that point. They beat the SEC champion in Alabama. They beat the Big Ten champ in Michigan to get to the Final Four. The field did not fall to UCLA. It wasn't like they beat, you know, four number 10 seeds. And so. For a team that when you look at the entire season, finished number 13 in Ken Palm, returns all five starters, and then adds in a shot blocker, which rim protection was one of their biggest issues last year, and Miles Johnson from Rutgers. And then they add in Peyton Watson, who was a five-star wing. And anytime you add in you know, a potential lottery pick, first-round talent, to a team that just went to the Final Four, you know, you're, you're sitting pretty. And I, I do think that the UCLA is, you know, looking pretty strong right there. A team that uh, I'm a little bit lower on maybe than some other people, I think, is uh, or a couple, I think, uh, are, are Villanova and Illinois maybe a little bit. You know, Villanova is a, a team that with them losing Jeremiah Robinson Earl, I have a hard time seeing how that team gets better from where they were last year. And, and then with Illinois, 
you know, you lose uh, Io DeSumo, but but even beyond that, there were some flaws I feel like in last year's Illinois team. You know, it, that were exposed in that loss to Loyola Chicago, and Loyola Chicago wasn't the only team that could have exposed them. But there are things that Illinois doesn't face in the Big Ten, and so. When you look at the way they were able to draw Kofi Coburn away from the basket, make him defend in space and different things like that, you don't see that as much in the Big Ten because everybody else has a really big center like you do. And so I think that there are some concerns there where I wonder once they get into an NCAA tournament setting, they get to say that second round game again, depending on who it is. They could once again be facing the type of team that uh, that maybe is is pretty well equipped to take advantage of some of those weaknesses, and so I think that's why I'm a little bit lower on on Illinois maybe than some other people might be. Are there any teams that maybe aren't in the top five or something like uh, ones that come to mind for me, or maybe Duke at nine and Kentucky at ten um, that maybe aren't as high up as as some of the schools like UCLA and Villanova and Michigan that you think might have a wider uh, room for variance, whether it's, you know, being a team that maybe it just doesn't come together versus being a team that you think could end up being one of the best teams in the country if it all clicks. Yeah, I, I think Duke and Kentucky are good ones to circle. Houston is one for me because Houston basically has the same exact team that just went to the Final Four and, you know, they're what, a Jordan Poole buzzer beater away from reaching each of the last three Sweet Sixteen. So I feel like Kevin, Kelvin Sampson, excuse me, has built that program pretty well. And while they lost a couple guys, including, you know, former KU star Quentin Grimes, you know, they picked up the, the transfer from, uh, from Texas Tech and Kyler Edwards. They picked up uh, another couple sh- transfers who can really shoot the ball. They're super deep in the front court, have another good backcourt. So that's one. A team that's so interesting to me, this year is St. Bonaventure because St. Bonaventure is a team that last year I feel like a lot of people were picking them to upset LSU, I think it was, in the first round and maybe even you know upset Michigan in the second, depending on how things went. They had a really you know good group of guys, a terrific starting five, and all five of those guys are back this year. And so you wonder a little bit, could this be a – a Dayton-type team. I don't know that they have an Obi Toppin, but potentially, you know, a mid-major team that plays way above its ability, like a a San Diego State or, or somebody like that where everything just sort of clicks and fits to where they wind up being a, a top-fiver or even a top-ten type of team. You know, Kyle, could Kyle Lofton be their Malachi Flynn? I, I think that's another team that uh, that really interests me. And then, you know, you've got some pretty intriguing teams in the Big 12, too, when you look at, you know, Texas having 8 billion new pieces and Baylor trying to reset after the title run and Texas Tech, you know, with a new coach, but he's an old coach running their same systems and everything. And they've got a pretty good-looking group of talent, too. And so I think that there's potentially a lot of variance in the Big 12 as well. Yes, uh, they're they're interesting to me. They kind of remind me of that uh, St. Bonaventure, that 2007 uh, Southern Illinois team almost, where it was like so good defensively, and that team ended up playing KU in the Sweet 16. Uh, Real quick before I let you go, the number one team is Gonzaga, and obviously they they were number one last year as well. It almost feels to me, and and I would have them number one in the preseason as well, so I don't want to make this sound like I'm against them being at the top, 
But it feels like to me last year was almost like a, yeah, they're surefire going to be one of the two or three best teams in the country when they were at the top of the preseason or near the top. Whereas this year, I feel like, I don't know, maybe there's an outside chance where they end up being, you know, maybe the, the fourth or fifth best team instead of the number one team. Like, it's not as surefire as last year. Is that correct? Or, or do you think there, there's a chance for this team to be better than they were last year? I mean, how do you view Gonzaga right now? Yeah, this year's Gonzaga team won't be as good as last year's Gonzaga team. The One of the best things that they have working for them is I'm not sure that there's going to be a team as good as last year's Baylor team was either. And, and so when you look at it, yes, it, it's a lot more open in the race for the top. And we could see, you know, more teams kind of roll through that number one spot, especially with all the transfers as everybody kind of tries to find themselves. Something that's going to be really, really interesting to watch with that team, Derek, is you have Drew Timmy, who's going to be pretty much everybody's preseason national player of the year, right? I mean, coming back as an All-America guy, shot, you know, 8000000000 billion percent last year, was super efficient. But then they added seven-footer in Chet Holmgren, who was the number one player in the 24-7 sports composite, the top-ranked recruit. And so you've got two really good big men there, which, you know, used to be, oh, man, you know, lock it up. That's that's the title right there. But college basketball has become so much more of a guard-oriented and space-oriented game that Gonzaga may have some choices to make this year where if they're in tough situations, they have to decide, hey, are are we actually better with with our two best players on the court or are we maybe actually a little bit better when one of those guys sits down because maybe we can defend somebody or maybe we can play in space a little bit better. And so I think Gonzaga could have some tough questions to answer on its way to potentially becoming, you know, number one at the end of the season. I do think they're they're the best bet. They are they do look like the nation's number one team, but last year, you know, even heading into the season, I feel like you felt there was Gonzaga, you know, maybe a little bit of a gap, Baylor, and then just the chasm and everybody else. He is Kevin Flaherty with twenty four seven sports. Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always and uh, talk to you next week, man. All right, thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty. Check out all his work, 24-7 Sports. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, and KLWN.com. Depend on it.